the sermon. Uh, as you'll recall, last week I began a new series going into the great whore, the beast, and some definitions in the end time, and how these will ultimately impact the church. But we have to have some definitions first. And in Revelation 17, as I mentioned, the Protestant commentators and the Church of God have always thought that the mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots in Revelation 17:5, was the Catholic Church. I question that seriously, and we will continue today to explore that issue. You'll remember last week that I went through Ezekiel 16 after showing that a woman does not necessarily have to represent a church in biblical symbolism in quite a few scriptures. Then we went to Ezekiel 16 to show very definitely that God considers uh, all Israel a whore. Uh, He went through in great detail explaining Israel's whoredoms. And you might recall that I mentioned that Ezekiel was written at least 100 and maybe as late as 140 years after Israel had gone into captivity. So this is a prophecy for the future. It is a recap of Israel's history, yes, because this had just, she had just been divorced for her whoredoms and put away by God. So now Ezekiel is writing a prophecy about a future whore not just the past, because it is a prophecy pointing forward about what God will do. And we, can, we will be able to tie many, many scriptures in showing that it is yet a future uh, fulfillment of what he says in Ezekiel 16. So, number one, God considers Israel a great harlot today at the end time. That's God's definition, not mine, not the Protestants, not anyone else's. That's clearly embedded in Scripture that Israel has played the harlot and is playing the harlot at the end time, and I don't think we have to go over the Scriptures, uh, which we have seen for many, many years, showing that Israel will be destroyed at the end time. I cited Ezekiel 5 last week, I believe, as an example of that, and the prophecies are simply full of what will happen to Israel that she will be taken into captivity with a great captivity, and only a small remnant will be saved, as was mentioned in Isaiah 1-9 in the sermonette. Now, most of you who have been hearing me speak for some years now have seen that I feel very decidedly that the prophecies are written in a dual sense, not the duality of Protestantism as they define it, but that there is an application both to the church in the prophecies and to the physical nation. And I have concentrated on the church in prophecy because I think that's the message that we need now. Uh, The message of prophecy being repent, overcome, be humble, be meek, uh, and maybe God will save you, which ties in with Matthew 24 where it says, pray that you be worthy to escape. Uh, are not worthy, it says accounted worthy. <laughs> it's not that we are so worthy, but God would account us that way through Christ's sacrifice and hopefully through our uh, our actions. But at any rate, 
the destruction on the church, I think, is coming close to completion. Even yesterday at that memorial, we had a scattering of people from different groups, people who had given up entirely and gone back to Protestantism, and I found myself in a strange situation in a way, and I commented on it in the memorial service, that used to we gave a funeral service and went through and showed that the dead really are dead, there is no immortality of the soul, the dead know nothing, and the resurrection to show that the Protestant doctrines on these things are wrong. And yet, yesterday I found myself in the position of having a room not with unconverted relatives, but with members of the church in a few cases who have gone completely back to Protestantism. And I find instead of trying to convince a Protestant mind that there's no immortality of the soul, that the dead haven't gone to heaven and weren't peering overlooking at us in the room, I'm having to try to convince people who were of the church of God that Bill Elmore was not in heaven looking down at us. And that is something that is increasing. I found it a strange dichotomy that we have people going back to the sow's wallow or the dog's vomit, whichever of James's analogies you like best, and you have to try to convince them. Of course, there in James it even says that once they've gone that far, there's no bringing them back. I mean, how do you leave Protestantism, accept the truth, and then go back to Protestantism, and where is the hope of redemption from that? It would be a very, very difficult thing, and perhaps God can do it in the tribulation, but I think it's beyond us, once they have denied the truth. So it's a terrible situation we find in the Church of God today, and I think that all these prophecies that are about to happen to physical Israel certainly can be applied to the church. I think we've been over that enough that I don't have to try to reprove it at this point. But we are now taking the other view, that now that the destruction is almost accomplished in the church, we have to consider the same application to the physical nations of Israel and to the world that God pronounced upon the church as well. And that is what we are getting into. So last week we addressed the fact that God calls Israel a horror, and I think it's very undeniable uh, when he goes into the detail there. He addressed Jerusalem first at the beginning of Ezekiel, uh, perhaps because he addresses spiritual Judah first. But there's no doubt as you go down through the context that he includes her sisters and Samaria, the ten northern tribes, in that prophecy. So it's not a prophecy just against Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, but it's also a prophecy against all Israel. And I think that that application can be drawn from that, that perhaps he's speaking of the church also in the end time as a great whore. Because worldwide went whoring after other religions, after other gods, after Satan, if you please. So that application certainly can be made of what has happened, and only a scattered remnant now are being faithful. And yet, on the other hand, Samaria is included, and in that sense, all of Israel, I believe, is included in that prophecy as well, because it is addressed to the nation, uh, not just to the church. So both applications can be made, I think, uh, without twisting Scripture out of context whatsoever. But today we are addressing the condition of physical Israel, what is about to happen to it, and 
how we might make some identifications in the Bible so that we might have a better idea of what God is trying to show us here at the end. So, a question. Let's, well, let's go to Revelation 17, and I'll read verse 5 and ask a question or two. Upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. We are told in chapter 18, verse 4, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. Now, I personally do not want to partake in Babylon's sins because I do not want to partake of her plagues. Therefore, I feel it is very important that we identify who, specifically, Babylon is, what her sins are, and what her plagues will be. Now, some will say that Babylon, and I have imbibed of this before and accepted it in the past, years ago, I've denied it, I think, in the last few years, uh, in my own mind, and, and even in sermons I've made allusions to it, but we need to get down to the brass tacks here. Question, is Babylon just a spiritual thing? Is it just a system that encompasses the entire world? Because, in one sense, that is a correct uh, analysis. Satan is the ruler of this world. Satan has deceived the whole world. We know those scriptures. And Babylon is a system which is Satan's beliefs. Uh, it includes the occult. It includes all that which came from Adam and Eve after their sin and Cain. It includes what happened at Babel with Nimrod and Semiramis and all that has come since from those systems. Uh, wherever you go in religions around the world, you find the immortality of the soul. It's a little different window dressing. Uh, some form of heaven, a little different window dressing in the Eastern religions. But all those basic doctrines, Satan's doctrines, are there. The ones that he foisted off on Adam and Eve at the very beginning. You shall not surely die. That is, you have an immortal soul. Uh, and it went on from there. So, wherever you look, Satan's system is certainly in place. But Babylon and the Chaldean Empire, the Babylonian Empire, was a specific empire that covered certain geographical parameters, and that was all. The city of Babylon at one point was a specific city. Uh, it was not a world-ruling city or empire. It covered quite a little of the, uh, let's say, of uh, Western Asia and perhaps even into Eastern Europe and the Middle East. But it was not truly a world-ruling thing. Now, here at the end, we have Babylon, who is destroyed by a beast. And we'll get to that later on. Now, if it's the whole world... The whole world has to destroy the whole world. Follow? But if you have different entities, one of which is Babylon, other entities destroy Babylon. And those entities then survive that battle because Babylon is fallen and the beast goes on. As do the nations and peoples that God destroys with the seven last plagues. So... 
I think it can be shown that Babylon, though it is certainly in an overall sense a system that Satan has instituted, there is a specific entity at the end that is destroyed by another specific entity. It is not the whole system destroying the whole system. And that's the only logic you can come to if you say it's the whole system, if you follow what I'm saying. Now, let's go back to Revelation 14, just for a brief moment. This chapter addresses, well, in chapter 13, you have two beasts. You have a big beast and a smaller beast, and we'll get to those later on. I don't want to ignore them. But in this prophecy, in the book of Revelation, this entire book, you find this beast making war with the saints in verse 7 of chapter 13. That ties in well with Daniel, and we'll get to those scriptures later on. You have a second beast that has miracles and makes fire come from heaven, smaller beast, and gives its power and weight and credence to the beast, the big beast. And then he has another picture here, a different ring in the circus. Uh, and, and you have to look at Revelation in that sense in a way. There's a lot going on all at the same time, like a three or a six ring circus. Uh, so you have to describe ring one. You can't describe all three rings at once. So he has to write a chapter describing ring one, another chapter describing ring two, and another describing ring three, perhaps, uh, since you can't do all at once. Now, here is a summary, in a way, in chapter 14, because the resurrection has not yet occurred at this point, and yet he sees here 144,000 standing on Mount Zion. And these are the first fruits, as we see in verse 4. 144,000 first, first fruits, no more, no less. And then there was another angel that he saw flying in verse 6. And he says, Preach to them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation, and kindred, and tongue, and people, everybody, the whole earth, in other words, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment is come. We're right at the end, he says here. Uh, the end time prophecies, God's judgment is about to come on mankind. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, kingdom, uh, empire, or is, is included, just like I, I refer perhaps to London uh, in terms of the United Kingdom. Or if somebody wants to know what the United States is doing, they say, well, Washington says... So the city of Babylon was only the capital and the representative of the entire empire or all of Chaldea, a nation. Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. That all is going to become important when we start defining who Babylon is. But it says here, notice, that Babylon has fallen twice. In other words, are there two events that occur where Babylon falls? Now, if we can define one entity that falls and is burnt by the beast, that entity takes over the power and control of the whore that it destroyed. Just like when a king would come in and, let's say, take over France, he became the king of France. 
So if an entity destroys the great four, then that entity becomes the new king of Babylon, its subjects, its peoples, whatever. We used to think Babylon is fallen as fallen is written only for emphasis, that it, that it not only falls, but it falls flat. And certainly that emphasis might be made. But I think we will see that there are actually, right at the end time, two falls of Babylon, very close together. But anyway, here in chapter 14, he introduces that Babylon is about to fall, that she has made all nations drink of the wine for the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, which was described in chapter 13, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. You think the wine of the wrath of Babylon's bad? Try the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. It's pure destruction, in other words, not mixed or blended. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever till it burns out. And they have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast in his image and who receive the mark of his name. Then he says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. So he introduces this chapter with 144,000. He talks about not worshiping the beast. It's going to fall and says, you better be patient right at the end and not give in to that beast, but fear God and give glory to him, which was the introduction in verse 7. So whatever is going to happen here at the end, it is going to include an entwinement, an entanglement, and a confrontation, if you will, between the beast and the people of God. That is the stage that is currently being set. The world against the church. Satan, who deceives the whole world and who is the ruler of this world, against the few people who are obeying God. Satan doesn't worry about the rest of the world. He has them under control. He has physical Israel under control. It is just the church that he does not control. It's just the few of us who are weak and base and had better look to God and fear him and give him glory that Satan is concerned about. And that is why you don't see much about physical Israel, really, if anything, other than uh, negative in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is addressed to the church in chapter 1. And all the way through here, it talks about the saints and the elect and, and uh, those who would worship God and about the world. He does not address physical Israel. Why? Because physical Israel is divorced because of her whoredoms. Physical Israel does not have a chance except a small remnant in the millennium who lived through the end time plagues and the great white throne judgment. So she simply is destroyed at the beginning of the end-time events. The great financial collapse is foretold in Zephaniah 1, and then all the other prophecies show Israel is going to die of famine, pestilence, the sword, and be taken into captivity. So really, she isn't a player when we come around to the events of Revelation. Only spiritual Israel is pitted against the world, because physical Israel will have been destroyed at that point. So, Let's go from there to 
to back to Revelation 17. And before we get into too much about the events at the end, let's continue with some definitions. God has defined Israel at the end time as a great whore. Now, is that the same whore that we find in Revelation 17 and 18? That's the question for today. All right, let's go into it. Uh, 17 verse 1. There came one of the seven angels with his, had the seven vials. Now he, he talks about Babylon before this in chapter 14. He even mentions it in chapter 16 here. Uh, verse 19, the great city was divided into three parts. The cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give to her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath, which is reiterated in Isaiah 47 and Jeremiah 50 and 51 as well as here. And we'll get to a lot of those scriptures later on. But but at the end time, God is going to give Babylon the great her comeuppance. No doubt about that. So she is mentioned in general terms in chapter 14 and in 16. But then we have some very specific prophecies beginning in chapter 17 that tie in very well with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and other places. So let's look at the specific definition that God gives here, some specifics about her. There came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying to me, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters. Now he said that that judgment is coming at the end of chapter 16. Now he says, I'll show you the judgment. Specifics about that judgment, in other words. So we want to define, first of all, who this great whore in verse 1 is. We need to make a de definition of what the many waters are, first of all, uh, as we get into this, because it's the first symbolism that comes up. And if you look down to verse 15, it explains what the waters are, not physical waters. He said to me, the waters which you saw, where the whore sits, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So she sits upon many nations and peoples. Remember, also, that this is a sexual analogy. It often thought of the beast having a woman riding on top of, you know, on its back, like a, you might ride a horse. But consider the analogy, and I'll leave the rest of that to your imagination. This great horse sits across many, many nations and peoples. That puts her in control of the whole operation with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So she has had a relationship with the kings of the earth, whoever this woman is. And they have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now wine can be doctrine, and if you will consider... Uh, if there is a religious context here, the Catholic Church certainly could fit that because they have spread their religion uh, not around the world, but to various parts of it. Their primary influence has been Italy, uh, the Iberian Peninsula with uh, Spain and Portugal, uh, somewhat through Europe and into South America, uh, smidgen in America. But 
that's about the extent of it. The Catholics have not made much inroads into Asia, uh, not a lot into Africa. Uh, there are a lot of Australia. There are a lot of areas that they have not had a great deal of influence. So understand that even though they call themselves the Universal Church, they do not have universal appeal. Uh, look at what has happened in the last 100 to 150 years. Where have most of the missionaries to the whole world come from? America. We are peddling our religious influence around the world via television and by missionaries that go to Africa, to South America, to Asia, all over the place. Mormons send their missions all over the world. We're doing a great deal from America to try to proselyte the rest of the world, not only to democracy, but to our religions, our pagan religions. That is, our satanic worship, because ultimately we worship we know not what as Americans. Just as Christ told the Jews, you worship you know not what, the Catholics are in the same boat, and so are the Protestants, all of them. They worship Satan and don't even know it. So, even in a religious sense, uh, the missionary effort of the world has been dominated by America in the last hundred years, certainly. Now, I don't know that that means doctrinally. Uh, wine can also be used to seduce. And harlots around the world throughout time have used alcohol to seduce men, just as men have used alcohol to seduce women. It lowers the, uh, the uh, well, I can't find the word. It lowers the, uh, well, I can't even think of any word. The what? Well, the will. Yeah, that's, that's good. Uh, you, you know what I'm trying to say. Makes it easier to seduce. So America has seduced the world, I believe. And I think that we're going to find that uh, it's the whole world and that these analogies are going to fit hand in glove. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So carried away, uh, John was, and by the spirit into a, a wilderness area. Uh, the rest of the world was pretty well settled and America was established in a wilderness area for the most part. A few American Indians, a few Eskimos, and that was about it. So that part could fit as well. Last frontier America was. Now I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, and it's been said that, and in verse 4 it mentions purple and scarlet color, but notice that the beast itself was scarlet colored. Now the beast is not the whore. The whore sits on the beast, straddles the beast. We've always said, well, uh, since they wear purple and scarlet down in verse 4, it must be the Catholic Church because of what the, Catholic, the uh, cardinals and the pope wear and so on. That, that's about the only thing religious you might find in here. But here's a scarlet colored beast as well. And the beast is not a religious entity. It is a warring entity, as we'll see when we get into the definition of the beast. Economic and military, not religious whatsoever. So the scarlet does not necessarily denote religion here, does it? It denotes bright colors, 
Well, we'll get to that here in a moment. I'll get back into that when we get down to verse 4. So the beast itself is bright, brightly clothed, show-off, wants to be seen as bright and uh, not, not fading into the background. This is a beast that will attempt to rule the world. It will very much want to be prominent, in other words. So the scarlet clothing would fit, not the attire of a harlot necessarily, but bright clothing. In other words, I want to be seen is the thought here. Full of names of blasphemy, everything against God, having seven heads and ten horns. There are no crowns on this beast, interestingly, but seven heads and ten horns. And we'll get into the beast later on, so I'm not going to comment more on that. We're one, we're one, we want to define the great whore, the woman, today. Verse 4, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, so she's wearing very colorful garments. Uh, a whore or a harlot usually dresses in a very, very showy way. They do make, take advantage of color. That doesn't mean that wearing colorful clothes is wrong if used in a right way. Joseph had a coat of what? Many colors. Probably a very bright coat. Maybe it had blue and red and yellow and green stripes. I don't know. I didn't see it. But it was of many colors. So it was a very showy coat, wasn't it, that was made for him. And that is not of itself wrong unless it is used in a wrong fashion. So if some of us want to wear red or purple or whatever, I have on a purple and, I guess, burgundy and blue tie. Uh, that doesn't make me a harlot. Uh, it just means my tie is, well, it's not really bright. It's a few colors, but uh, color itself is not wrong. It's the misuse. Just like wine is not wrong, it's the misuse. Food is not wrong, it's the misuse. And the same is true here of color. But she wanted to show off, obviously. Purple and scarlet cover, color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. So she had on lots of jewelry. Now, there's nothing wrong with jewelry. Colorful clothes and jewelry are not wrong. We find many scriptures in the Bible. In fact, in Ezekiel 16, which we read last week, God said that he had put jewelry on Israel. He had dressed her up and given her those things. It's just that she used that jewelry and those fine clothes that he put on her for a wrong purpose. That was what was wrong. It wasn't the clothes. It wasn't the jewelry. It was the purpose to which they were put. And this great whore is using them for harlotry. Having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Now she's holding this woman a golden cup. It reminds me a little bit of what Christ said about the Pharisees, that they had cleaned the outside of the cup, but within it was full of wretchedness and filth. So she's holding up a cup that looks pretty good, see? I mean, you, you look at a gold cup and you think, wow, that's a nice cup. Not understanding what is inside that cup. Having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Now, I could see how that could apply to the Catholics. Pope might hold up a golden cup, and, uh, and yet we know that that church is full of evil and sin and filthiness. So, so far, you could say that could fit the Catholic Church. But couldn't it also fit America, which is the richest nation that the world has ever known? Our cup isn't just any old pewter cup. Our cup, in the eyes of the world, is a golden cup, isn't it? Uh, our wealth is 
admired and uh, made jealous of around the world. It's a golden cup, all right. Everybody wants to come here and take part in uh, America's dream, or the American dream. And we're being flooded with people from all over the world coming in right now to live the American dream. So to them, it is a golden cup. But are we not also a people that are full of abomination and filthiness in our fornication? I don't think there's a whole lot of question about that. We promote more filth and distribute it around the world than any other people ever have. Via television, via movies, via videos, it goes everywhere. Our filth, our sitcoms about homosexuality, fornication and adultery and smoking and drinking and violence go everywhere. I've been around the world. And everywhere I've gone, if I turned the TV on, what did I see? American programming of violence, misused sex, and homosexuality, and you name it. It's there. Anywhere in this world you want to go, it's there if they have television. They have a few of their own programs, perhaps, but they have mostly American filth. The Catholic Church can't touch that with a stick. They do not promote it in the way we do. In fact, their filthiness they try to hide until their pedophiles and their homosexual relationships start coming out, and then they try to hide it even more, don't they? They try to stay hidden in that way. But we, we spread it all around the world. Now, doesn't that sound like Ezekiel 16 that we read about last week? They don't just come and pay you for your favors. You're not just a woman of negotiable affection. But you lay it on them and pay them. We spread it everywhere. All right, let's go to verse 5. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Now that's what the Protestants jumped on to say, really, that this is the Catholic Church. All right, let's start examining this. A, this is a mystery. Babylon is a mystery system. It symbols of the occult are somewhat hidden unless you understand them. And you can go through uh, books that have been written about Mystery Babylon the Great and the identification of Nimrod and Semiramis and Isis and Osiris, the same people with different names in different countries on different continents. And the Christmas tree and Easter and all that stuff that we read about in uh, uh, Hislop's The Two Babylons and in a book called Mystery Babylon the Great and several others are out that are published. It is a mystery system. Satan is in the dark, and he has kept things a mystery, except to those who understand. Now, if God calls this great harlot a mystery, wouldn't it be a mystery? Wouldn't it be hard to discern in a way? That didn't seem to be any mystery to all those who left the Catholic Church, did it? When the Protestant Reformation occurred with Martin Luther and Calvin and all the others, they became the daughters of the Catholic Church, didn't they? Now, it's a strange thing to me that those who left the Catholic Church split into many, many, many different denominations as daughters of Catholicism 
It's a mystery to me that they can call her the great whore and not understand that they are the daughters. They're condemning themselves with their own words. Was their assessment correct is my question today. Now, there's no doubt the Catholic Church is a great whore. There's no doubt that the Protestants are her little harlot daughters. Uh, their churches are full of occult symbolisms. But then so are the governments. We'll get into that a little bit later on of the world, including ours. This is a mystery that might only be understood at the end. Once things start happening to the point, recognition can come. So the Protestants thought they had it figured out, and that's what all the commentaries will say. But can we depend upon the Protestants for Bible exposition? Name some things we can depend upon the Protestants for. How about immortality of the soul? How about the Trinity? How about uh, the law being done away with? How about going to heaven, a never-burning hell? Can we depend on them so far? <laughs> no, not on your life you can't. Well, can we depend upon them in their definition of this great whore? All right, it's mystery, something that has to be discerned. It's also tied in, obviously, with Babylon the Great, the great occult system that Satan has started on the earth. And she is called the mother of harlots. Now, as I said, that could fit the Catholic Church in one sense because the Protestant Reformation brought a, little, a lot of little daughters out from the Catholic Church. But there is a great whore that antedates the Catholic Church by thousands of years. Remember, the Catholic Church didn't even start until about 100 A.D. Well, actually, uh, Peter talked with Simon Magus, who likely started the Catholic Church probably soon after Christ ascended. So we're looking at... 31, 2, 3, 34 A.D., the Catholic Church actually had its very beginning, but it didn't really hit the world scene until uh, after 100 A.D., basically, when the Church of God itself had basically disappeared, as Mr. Armstrong always said, a completely different church appeared after 100 A.D. It had syncretized, adopted a lot of paganism, and it was not a church at all like what Christ had founded through Peter, James, John, and, and the other apostles. So the Catholic Church didn't really even take hold until after 100 A.D. Now this whore that God talks about that we read about last week in Ezekiel 16 uh, antedates that by thousands of years. Now let's go back for a moment to Ezekiel 16. and emphasize a point here. Ezekiel 16. And I want to begin in verse 41. We went through this in detail last week, all this whole chapter, but I want to pick out something here. Talking to this harlot Israel, verse 41, They shall burn your houses with fire and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. She is lumped here with many women. This whore will be destroyed in the sight of many women. He has already lumped her in verse 38 as a woman, or as women that, wake, that break wedlock. And he's going to have a lot of people gather to see her destroyed. So this will be done in the sight of many women, or nations, I think, because this is speaking in national terms, not in uh, 
city terms or individual terms. I will cease you from play. To, I will cause you to cease from playing the harlot, and you shall give no hire any more. Uh, let's see. They have fretted God in all these things. Verse 44, Behold, everyone that uses Proverbs shall use this proverb against you, saying, As is the mother, so is her daughter. You are your mother's daughter that loathed her husband and her children, and you are the sister of your sisters which loathed their husbands and their children. And talks about how she has become just like the Gentiles around her. Uh, Verse 48, As I live, says the Lord God, Sodom your sister has not done, she nor her daughters, as you have done, you and your daughters. This Israel that God is describing here is the mother of harlots. God calls her a mother of harlots. You're the mother, your daughters have also committed harlotry. Now this is a specific Bible definition of Israel and Judah as a great harlot with daughters. How do you deny that? So in the end time, Israel is going to be a mother of harlots. Uh, Let's go to Hosea 1. Hosea 1. Again, speaking in a national sense, not considering the church here in this particular fulfillment, let's understand what is said in Hosea. The word came to Hosea, and he told Hosea in verse 2, Go take you a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land has committed great whoredom departing from the Lord. Not only a woman, but children of whoredoms. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, which conceived and bare him a son. And he talks then about, she had another one, or call that one uh, Jezreel, meaning that he will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. So this horror that he is talking about here and her children are a type of Israel that will be destroyed. I want to get down to... Let's see. Well, let's, let's go on in verse 6. And she conceived again and bare a daughter, and God said to him, Call her name Laruhama, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. But I will have mercy upon the house of Judah, and will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, by horses, nor by horsemen. When God sets his hand to choose to save Israel, he's not going to do it with military might. There is one of the whoredoms of America right there is in the military sense, and we'll get to that a little more later on. Yet the number of the children of Israel, verse 10, shall be as the sand of the sea. Now, they weren't when this was written. So this is a future prophecy, and today there are roughly 500 million Israelites on the face of the earth. Try counting 500 million grains of sand next time you're laying on the beach. You're going to have an all-day job and more. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there it shall be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. So there is a time when God will say, Israel is not my people. Divorced, gone, put away, not my people. But eventually, there it will happen. 
Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So that's a future prophecy. But now notice chapter 2. Uh, I say to your brethren, Ami and your sisters, Rahum, Ruhama, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. In other words, Israel's status now is divorced, put away. She is, she is not the people of God. They've, they've gone somewhere else. They've departed from God. Uh, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day she was born and make her as a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms, for their mother has played the harlot. She that conceived them has done so shamefully. So she and her daughters. I'll pause there while we turn the tape over. Are we already that far? So here in Hosea, as well as in Ezekiel, God depicts Israel as a great harlot and the children of harlotry. And have not we, generation after generation, continued the harlotry that occurred back then for which she was destroyed and Israel never recovered from? In fact, after Israel was taken captive before Ezekiel wrote his prophecy, they never went back to the Holy Land at all. From there, they migrated across Western Asia and into Europe, and from there to America and Australia, South America, South Africa, uh, to different places around the earth, never went back to the Holy Land, and were never a people that were even recognized anymore, were they? In fact, today, you try to identify Israel, and people come up with the Jews, and that's all. They don't have any idea where the ten lost tribes are. But they have to still be around, don't they? They have to have multiplied as the sands of the sea. And we see today Israel consorting with the rest of the world. Have we turned to God? Has Israel ever turned to God? We've turned to pagan religions, be they outright Satan worship or humanism or... Catholicism or Protestantism or whatever we've turned to, but never to God. So, the whoredom has continued generation after generation. Did not Israel start out as a great harlot? Well, not start out, but became that very quickly after God set her aside as a bride. And haven't her daughters then continued harlotry throughout the thousands of years since that time? Yes, we have. So is Israel a mother of harlots? She antedates the Catholic Church in that activity by thousands of years. <clears throat> and God himself uses that definition. Not something the Protestants came up with. It's something that is scripture. Something God himself wrote. <clears throat> All right, mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. You go into the first chapters of Ezekiel. He pronounces great curses on Israel and even goes through and shows how they worship the Queen of Heaven, sun worship, uh, through Easter and through Christmas and condemns those things very soundly. Jeremiah con condemns Christmas, chapter 10. Now those were all sun worship. They go back to uh, Nimrod and Semiramis. I think we all know the story. We should about how Nimrod was born of Semiramis in an immaculate conception. Uh, and then when Nimrod died, he sprung 
overnight into a full-grown evergreen tree, which became the Christmas tree. And the worship of mother and child, Semiramis and Nimrod, uh, became known around the world. Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz became an unholy trinity, called a holy trinity. So the mother and child was spread all around the world from Nimrod and Semiramis long before Christ was ever even born, before Mary conceived. So, do we have those abominations in America? Are we like that? Let's consider some things. Look at the dollar bill. Maybe you got one in your pocket. The great seal of the United States was formed and, and uh, approved by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1935. Uh, the idea was brought to him by a Mason, Freemason, and FDR himself was a Freemason. And the great seal of the United States has an eagle on one side. Uh, the eagle is said to be and was used in the occult. Now, God created eagles. There's nothing wrong with eagles per se. But they were used in the occult. And the nine tail feathers, uh, well, let's see. First of all, the eagle uh, is the only animal reputed to be able to look directly into the sun and live. So they've attributed mystical qualities to the eagle. Then you turn it over and you find the all-seeing eye of Horus on the front. You find the triangle, the trinity of Semiramis or Isis and Osiris, depending on where you go. Uh, the terminology on it, uh, which you see, is, where did I, I wrote it down, I can almost say it, Novus uh, Order Seclorum is written there in the Great Seal of the United States. Those words in Latin mean New Order World. New order of the world, the new world order as we say it today. And FDR invented or started his, what did he call it? New deal, a new deal for the world. It is throughout everything we have. Washington Monument is a penis, to put it bluntly, representing the so-called father of our country. It is, was it only by happenstance that it's 555 feet high, the number of the occult? The same is true of Hollywood and the prefix they use on every phone number. They'll always say 555. They use the same occult number for their prefix on telephone numbers in movies and television that is the same height as Washington's penis in Washington. The Statue of Liberty was given to us, designed by French Freemasons. Uh, on the crown, you have 25 windows, they say representing the 25 minerals of the earth, seven points, which represent either the seven continents or all seven oceans. They're not sure which he intended. But when you think about that, that encompasses the whole world, doesn't it? All the continents, all the oceans. That symbol, that statue, represents to the occult world, rulership of the entire world. 
and the Freemasons believe that America has a job to do, and that is to rule the world, the entire world. That crown is in the form of a circle, and even on one of the stamps that commemorate the Statue of Liberty, it has a halo there, representing sun worship to the occult. If you combine the 25 windows or minerals that they say with the seven horns or points on that crown, you come up with 33. The whole earth and the whole sea, the entire world in other words, uh, comes to the number 33, which is an occult number used over and over and over. You have 33 degrees in the Masonic uh, Lodge. Uh, it's sun worship. It goes right back to Isis and Osiris, Nimrod and Semiramis. She carries the torch borrowed from the Olympics. I did research into the Olympics some years ago and found that it was based on sun worship. And the great Colosseum they had the Olympics in faced the east, the rising of the sun. And that flame and that torch represent the sun. So right there at America's door, we have sun worship and Satan worship right at the gate as you come into America. That was not done by happenstance. We have adopted Babylon, Babylonian paganism. Uh, I have not watched the Olympics at all, the last two Olympiads, well actually four when you consider the, Olymp for the Winter Olympics, because I found that it's derived from paganism. Uh, same paganism from which we got Christmas and Easter. Very same paganism. In Ezekiel 16, I did not uh, dwell upon it last week, but it talks about causing your children to pass through the fire to Molech. That's sun worship. And we have adopted in America today sun worship. Uh, it's, it's in our monuments. It's in our churches. Nearly every church in America has a penis erect on top of it as you go in. And then you see the cross at the back end of it, and it's got one pointed down. It's the same symbol. Just one's pointed up and one's pointed down. I hate to be so blunt, but you can read the books, and it's all in there. It's sex worship. You have the the interlocked circle with the uh, with the cross, the yin, the yin and the yang of the thing. I suppose. What does the circle represent? Well, when you get right down to it, it can be traced back. The word church is translated in the English versions of the Bible. It comes from the Scottish word kirk. You can look this up very easily. And Kirk means circle. Uh, and it was used by the occult. Now, God made circles. The sun's round, the moon's round, more or less. Uh, trees are round. God made round. Nothing wrong with round, except and unless it is put to a wrong use. And that's what they have done with the circle. If you have the cross, which represents the male phalanx, then you have the circle, which represents female sexual parts. And you trace back this word church to Kirk to the occult, uh, the word that is translated church in English comes from vagina, to put it bluntly. And that's why they have them interlocked, the male phallus with the circle, the yin, the yin and the yang, or the yin and the yang, or whatever it is in, in, the, in Asian, but it, it's all the same across and around the world. And we've adopted those symbols in our society today. It's a, it's a pretty gruesome bit, but we have accepted all the abominations of Nimrod and Semiramis into our society. It's on our money. It's on our churches. It's everywhere you go. 
is it any wonder I decided that we should take the word ecclesia, uh, translated assembly, congregation, or some synonym. I just felt the word church was not the best thing to call us. Uh, ecclesia is the Greek word, and it has meaning of assembly or congregation or gathering, group. Uh, all those are synonyms of ecclesia. And church is of dubious uh, origination at best. Now maybe they were not thinking that when they translated it into English from uh, the Greek and so on, but it does go back there and it has been used that way. So when it's the Catholic Church, when you look at the Vatican in Rome, you find that uh, it has two wings coming out with a vestibule right in the middle and it again is a female object. That was not done by happenstance. So there again, yes, the Catholic Church, I think, is a, uh, a replica or a counterfeit of some other things on the earth. They are all a part of the system of this world started by Satan. So maybe that's enough of that. I could go on and on and on. But uh, Ben Franklin said that at least 26 of the 39 framers of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence were Masons, Freemasons. That's why Washington, D.C. is laid out in a triangle, the all-seeing eye of Horus. Well, the whole city is not laid out that way, but some of the streets form the triangle within Washington, and it's confusing when you drive through there, I noticed. So we have seduced the world with these things. Where did I want to go? Well, here's, here's a good one about our, our consorting with the world. I just uh, picked this up this morning from Tom Chart here, who found it on the Internet. Uh, this is called Supreme Court Internationalists. As if it weren't bad enough that the U.S. Supreme Court majority pays little heed to the U.S. Constitution, now it is becoming clear five or six members of the Supreme Court are being influenced <laughs> by the constitutions and courts of foreign countries. Ruth Bader Ginsburg blew the court's cover in a speech to the American Constitution Society explaining that her colleagues are looking beyond America's borders for guidance in handling cases on issues like the death penalty and homosexual rights. Do we look to God? Do we look to the Bible? Are we a Christian nation? We're looking to the Gentile constitutions to determine whether homosexuality and the death penalty are good or not. Now, is that idolatry? Is that departing from God and consorting, prostituting ourselves to the Gentiles' ideas? In a decision earlier this summer in a Texas case in which anti-sodomy laws were overruled, the justices first, notice this, first referred to the findings of foreign courts, not even to our own courts to determine whether gays should live together or not, but to foreign courts. Uh, Ginsburg continued, justices, she said, are becoming more open to comparative and international law perspectives. In other words, they're joining the international idea of a new world order. She told a group of judges, lawyers, and students that while you are the American Constitution Society, 
your perspective on constitutional law should encompass the world. There you go. And there's more, but I won't go into that at this point. You can read books and books on this, how we are involved in this world. Now, I wanted to cover some sections here. Uh, I talked about the dollar bill. Um, what do with that? I had a page here with some things on it that I wanted to cover. Now, here it is. <clears throat> how are we the mother of harlots? How does our harlotry show? Well, let's start with the military. God told us that we were to depend upon him originally as ancient Israel for our protection. They decided they needed a king. They decided they needed a military. God accepted it. It wasn't his original intent, but he accepted it. And he let them war, and he was with them when they would obey him. But he told us not to make alliances with Gentile nations. What does America do today? It makes coalitions with all kinds of nations, Israelite and Gentile. We're depending upon the arm <coughs> of the military to protect us and to keep the American society the way we have it. That is harlotry. Not just physical sex, but there are many, many different forms of, of harlotry when you consider idolatry, where we depend upon things other than God for whatever the subject might be. Uh, what is America if not economic? Our sway with the world is not only militarily, and I think the military is becoming simply a mercenary for large corporations. If we, if the world's cor or the big corporations in America need oil, we defeat Iraq. Uh, if the world's corporations want this, we go in and destroy somebody else. So uh, money is using the military to its own ends. And won't America, and Americans for that, most, for that part, do most anything for money? Isn't that what our society is based upon, materialism? Anything for money, whatever it takes. That's the way we think. America will make deals with foreign countries over money anywhere and anytime about anything. Uh, sports, there's the Olympics. Sun worship, began with sun worship, and they still have the interlocked rings today with the circles. I've already described what that means. They did the Olympics originally naked. Uh, I thought Larry's comment in the sermonette was interesting with the demons who redecorate when they move in. And it's part of the mystery system to hide what you really look like. And America likes to hide. Uh, as a people, we adopted makeup, which came from Babylon. God says to get out of Babylon. But what does makeup do? It hides what you really look like. It makes you look different than what you did. That is something that American society adopted very heavily. I think Mr. Armstrong made the right decision when he finally, after all the hassle, up and down, back and forth about makeup, said, they will only change this over my dead body. This is a final judgment on it for the end-time church. 
And if ever he made a judgment that I feel is binding on the end-time church, that was it. And they indeed changed it back over his dead body. But the more I look into Babylon and understand the mystery system and the trying to hide and the trying to look different than you are and how Satan tries to appear as an angel of light and you equate the principle of makeup with that, I can see that God caused Herbert Armstrong finally to make the right decision. It is something that was originally used by harlots in Babylon. That makes it in the same category as Christmas and Easter, the Olympics, and anything that came from Babylon and Egypt. Follow me? doesn't matter what it was. If it came from there, it's in the same category as those things God condemns. We can find all kinds of reasons and excuses as to why we want to hang on to something that came from Babylon. And in some cases for ladies, it's as hard to give up makeup as it was for us to give up Christmas and Easter and take it away from our children as we looked upon it perhaps as we took it away something very near and dear to the heart. And yet, if it had its origination in harlotry and in Babylon, doesn't it have to go? Don't the Olympics have to go? That's where they had their origination. Their sex symbols and sun worship, just like Christmas and Easter. No difference whatsoever. Yes, Satan wants to redecorate the world and redecorate its people. God didn't make us to wear clothes. That's not hiding in his idea or his thought. He made clothes and put people, put them on people, and he also said he would adorn Israel with jewelry. So he has nothing against jewelry or clothes, but if they're misused, and that's how Paul and Peter termed it in the New Testament, dress modestly, don't dress in a way to try to be seen, to try to be... Uh, to impress, but the real clothing is a contrite heart, humility, meekness, and so on. You can use jewelry, you can use clothes, but don't misuse and abuse. But he did not put makeup on Israel. She put it on herself, and she got it from Babylon. There is a difference. And it does not decorate and enhance the body. It hides what you really look like. And I think that that is really the principle uh, that we need to consider here. Plus, I think that Mr. Armstrong, after all the contention and attitudes and people leaving and various things, finally said, this is confusion in Israel. We'll have it no more. And I really feel that that is binding upon us. Right, we've already discussed religion to some degree, Protestantism, Mormonism. What I didn't mention is humanism. That is a religion now that is sweeping America. Uh, animals are just as important as people, in fact, a little more important. And humanism, at its center, means that, and I've seen the definition of humanism, means that humans have the answers. We do not need a deity who created us because humans have the answers. That is the basis of the definition of humanism. And we have today in America, we're leading the world in cloning uh, in trying to make people immortal by farming uh, different organs, and, and in 
the rest of Israel as well. It's in Europe, some of it, but that's part of Israel. If uh, if we're the head in America, then the rest of Israel is the rest of the whore's body. But we lead the world in that kind of research, trying to make man immortal. We'll be able to farm your organs, and when yours wear out, we'll put new ones in you, and you can just live on and on. We think we have all the answers. Where did that come from? Where did all this medical science and all this science come from? What was its stem? What was its root? You will go back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3. We'll see where this started. You know that's the Garden of Eden. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made, and he's symbolic of, of Satan here. Yea, as God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. That's the question. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God gave us instruction. She remembered that. The serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God does know that on the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and free to be desired. And she took of the fruit, and gave, ate it, and gave it to her husband. And then their eyes were opened. All right. What did Satan tell her, really? Of the fruit of the tree, God has said, you shall not eat. The serpent said, you shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as God's, knowing good and evil. In other words, you will have all the answers yourself. You won't need God because when you eat of that tree, you'll know good and evil and you'll have all the answers. That is at the basis of humanism. Deny God and accept that human beings know it all. And there is no place on earth that is, that is more rife and more out in the open than in America today. In so many categories that go far beyond anything the Catholic Church can even envision, America has created a system of idolatry and departure from God. So it's religious, it's economic, it's social, it's military, it's moral, and I've already stated how Hollywood exports more immorality than anyone on earth. Catholic Church can't even touch it. Where, where do they export evil? Well, they send priests out to play with boys, but beyond that, uh, they're not promulgating it the way we are. We are seducing and inducing people to our culture worldwide in a way that has never, ever been done before. It was never possible before. Now let's go back to Revelation 17. I guess I'm almost through here, aren't I? If we haven't even really gotten into the definition here yet, we've just reviewed some things that America is. But we've established that it would have been a mystery uh, that America might possibly be this great whore, because still America was here. How could the Protestant commentators in Europe look upon anyone being that except the Catholic Church whom they were fighting with, uh, ignoring the fact that they were the daughters of that church and really didn't change the doctrines of the Catholic Church all that much. They changed the clothes, 
but they kept the heaven, they kept the hell, they kept the, uh, the trinity, they kept most of the doctrines of the Catholic Church. So they're certainly daughters. But if it was a mystery, it could only perhaps be understood here at the end when a great Babylon would arise that had been a mother of harlots before the Catholic Church ever even came into being, thousands of years before, and that God himself calls a mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And we are the source of those abominations being scattered around the world today in a way that has never, ever been touched. Well, let's see. Maybe that's a good place to, to stop uh, because I'm, I'm going to get into another section here in verse 6 which uh, needs some explanation. I don't really have time to get into that. So I think that we will stop here and pick it up there then next time in verse 6.